Hello and welcome to Reclaiming Blindness, a special edition of the Donmar Warehouse podcast produced alongside Blindness, a new socially distanced sound installation adapted by me, Simon Stevens, from Jose Saramago's dystopian novel. I'm here talking to Professor Hannah Thompson about the representations of blindness in blindness, both the novel and this adaptation. Hannah Thompson is a partially blind academic and audio description user based at Royal Holloway University of London, where she is Professor of French and Critical Disabilities Studies. Hannah is the author of three books on issues of gender, sexuality and disability in French literature and culture. Her third book, Reviewing Blindness in French Fiction, 1789 to 2013, marks the start of Hannah's influential work on critical disability studies and her theory of blindness gain. Hannah's also the author of the popular Blind Spot blog. Hannah, really lovely to, to meet you and, and welcome to the Donmar Warehouse podcast. Thank you, Simon. Thanks for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. We made contact and spoke to one another very, very recently when we contacted you to talk about helping us prepare audio visual aids for the production of, of blindness. And to my immense embarrassment, it was the first time that I realised that Saramago's book, a book that I'd read as a, a horrifying nightmare vision of a society in breakdown and a total governmental failure to cope with that breakdown, was a book that had caused great anger and a great unhappiness in the blind community. It was published in 1995, I think. And so when we spoke to you and your colleagues, we were not aware, being ignorant people, we were not aware how controversial the book the book was. When did you first come across the book, Hannah? When did you first read the book? Um, so I think I probably read it about mm, seven or eight years ago. I, um, I was doing research for my book on blindness in French literature, and I was kind of trying to read around the subject and read the classic English language depictions of blindness. So um, blindness, um, Day of the Triffids is another one. Poor Miss Finch by Wilkie Collins. There are loads. If, if you start, there's lots of Dickens books with blind characters in them. If you start thinking about blindness in literature, it's all over the place. Were you aware when you read it, were you aware that it was uh, a novel that people were cross about or people had been angry about? I'd heard kind of, you know, my blind friends and colleagues saying, you know, talking about how upsetting it was to them. But to be honest, it's extremely rare to find positive representations of blindness in literature. So if you're researching blindness, you don't really expect to find, you know, helpful, happy, happy depictions of blind people. <laughs> it might be useful just for people who listen to this, maybe before they've seen the show or, or, or who've not read the novel, um, just to give a bit of a breakdown of what the novel depicts. It starts, the, both the play and the novel start uh, a set of traffic lights in an unnamed I always think European city, although it could be Latin American city, uh, when the driver at the front of a middle lane in a, in a three-lane carriageway suddenly and without any apparent cause goes blind. He suffers from an immediate, sudden and peculiarly white blindness. He's unable to drive and he's taken back to his flat. Hours later, the person who takes him back to his flat and incidentally steals his car also goes blind. And within 24 hours, it becomes clear that in this unnamed city, there is an epidemic of infectious, sudden 
blindness. It's a novel about an epidemic. When I read it, and I, I speak as a partially sighted writer, I have no central focal vision in my left eye and kind of minus 14 in my right eye. The possibility of blindness is something that's been in my imagination as a thinker and as a writer for, for a decade. When I read the novel, I think that idea, the idea of an epidemic of blindness, terrified me. I think it was a terror that made me want to, to write about it. Um, I also found it a book in the end that was ultimately, in my opinion, kind of profoundly hopeful. If it's a book about anything, for me, it's a book about the possibility of recovery. It's uh, kind of peculiarly timely, although I've been kicking the adaptation around for about 18 months, it's peculiarly timely to have it produced in, in the midst of a pandemic. For me, it's more than it's actually about blindness, it's about organisational catastrophe on a governmental level. But it'd be useful, I think, if you could unpick some of the politics that have made... I mean, is it is it right to talk about a blind community? Is that a bit... Is it slightly homogenising to kind of imagine, like, a blind community or...? <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, that's one of the issues um, with depictions of blindness, is that everybody talks about blindness as a, yeah, as a homogenous um, condition, whereas, in fact, there are as many experiences of blindness as there are blind people. I guess if you talk about a community, it's more about a kind of group of people who who care for each other, who support each other and who lobby for blind rights, you know, the right to uh, access, especially print access, access to theatre, access to cinema. I think for me, there are two issues with the novel. The first is that the world, as people go blind, the world kind of descends into chaos. So there's a suggestion that blindness leads to um, a lack of knowledge, a lack of ability, a lack of dignity. Um, it leads to kind of animalistic behaviour, sexual behaviour, violent behaviour, which are outside the norms of um, what we might call, I guess, civilised society. It's absolutely true that the novel's about the epidemic and it's about the effects of sudden infection. But by using blindness as a metaphor for disaster, he is, he is nonetheless presenting a really negative picture of what happens when someone goes blind. Now, it's absolutely true that sudden, unexpected blindness is an absolute catastrophe. You know, it's, it's deeply shocking, um, impossible to deal with. Uh, people are kind of in mourning. You know, it's like, it's like losing a loved one. But that doesn't mean that, that being blind is a tragedy. Um, being blind, it's just a, it's a different way of living. The thing is, is that we live in a society which um, overvalues sight. Most of us are intensely visually dependent and therefore terrified of blindness because it, that signals a lack of vision. But as I know, as you know, as um, all blind people know, being blind just, just makes you find different ways of doing things. The other issue with the novel is that the only person who saves the group of blind people is a sighted person, um, albeit a sighted person who's pretending to be blind. So it, it establishes a power hierarchy, a hierarchy of power where sighted people are more powerful and more able than blind people. And that's a hierarchy which already exists. It's just it's actually just reinforcing what most people think, which is that blindness is worse than sight. 
Um, and you kind of said that yourself earlier when you said that it was a novel of recovery. You were kind of implying that it's a hopeful outcome at the end because the, the characters regain their sight. That shows how much you have internalised the oculocentric focus of our society, that our society really thinks that, that vision is the most valuable of the senses. Mm. But paradoxically, the sound installation at Dunmar undermines that belief yeah. because it really celebrates the non-visual, yeah. I would argue. I'd completely accept that that was, my, uh, that, that was an assimilated kind of assumption on my behalf and kind of apologise for it. I'm born and raised in a society that completely privileges sight. What was your phrase? Oculocentric. Yeah, yeah, oculocentric. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Rather lovely phrase. I'm really fascinated by the ideas, uh, by your theory of blindness gain. I'd love you to talk about that. What, what's blindness gain, Hannah? It was originally coined, in fact, a similar phrase was coined by the deaf community, um, deaf gain, which is this idea that um, something which is traditionally seen as a disadvantage or a lack can actually bring value, not just to, to people who are experiencing it, but to everyone, to society at large. So I've kind of taken the, the notion of deaf gain or disability gain and applied it to blindness. And my argument is really that not only is blindness a valuable way of living in its own right, it can also give sighted, or I prefer to say non-blind people, different experiences, specifically for me, different aesthetic experiences. And audio description is a really good example of that. It was developed as an accessible tool, an accessibility tool to help blind people access visual um, experiences like cinema, television, theatre. But actually, if a sighted or a non-blind person listens to audio description, they're going to often gain a different kind of relationship with the material that they're watching often a much more memorable, much more intense kind of, kind of relationship. Looking at, uh, looking at your website and the, the descriptions of art on your website, I would really testify to that. They're really beautiful to read. Um, we talked last week about how bad uh, looking sighted people are. <laughs> when you had a beautiful description of walking down the street with your husband and seeing a sign that he hadn't seen. <laughs> and the, the descriptions of the art on your website and I really recommend people go and have a look at it, really made me realise how often I've, I'm very bad at looking at art. <laughs> Can I ask a little bit about your relationship with blindness and your relationship with, with sight? Um, you call yourself partially blind, don't you? This is another example um, of kind of reclaiming blindness in a positive light. People always talk about um, partial sight or um, sight loss, visually impaired um, and those are all those are all, those posit people who don't have sight as as less as lacking something as having lost something. So blindness gain is about blindness is the ideal um, to 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 work towards. So being partially blind means I haven't quite gained my full blindness yet. Okay, so it's it's a kind of you know I mean I'm a linguist. So I play language is my is my job right. So. The words we use to describe things are absolutely crucial to the way we think about things. So I've, I've made a decision in the last 10 years to, to stop describing myself as partially sighted and describe myself as partially blind to show that I'm proud of that. And I'm not aspiring to be sighted. I mean, I'm in a very interesting position because I was, my sight hasn't really changed since I was born. Technically, I've always been registered blind in the medical sense, but I have quite a lot of sight in some in some, some ways of measuring it, I have a lot. In some ways of measuring it, I have hardly any. 
so and because I was born like this this has always been my way of being so I haven't ever had to adapt or change or learn new skills in a way that someone with acquired sight loss or blindness gain would have um I did have cataracts which made me almost completely blind temporarily and it was at that moment that I realized that I had to stop trying to pass as sighted and I had to like learn to be blind in a much prouder way I grew up in the in the 70s and 80s when mainstream schooling was was just starting um so I went to a, a kind of you know the, my my local school um with support and basically my whole kind of ethos was pass as sighted pretend to be sighted that'll be how you get through life it was only in my you know as I say only about 10 8 10 years ago that I realized that that was really a, kind of an impossible and really unhelpful thing because I was basically in denial about my, my my own identity, my own way of being. And so that's when I had a complete, it was like an epiphany. I, I completely changed my approach. And I like, I started using a white cane. I learned Braille. I started using audiobooks. Um, I was much more um, avert with everyone about this is what I need. You know, and I've become a kind of militant, kind of pro-blindness campaigner, I suppose. <laughs> um because, um, well, I kind of have to be, don't I, to, to be happy with who I am, you know? It's really inspiring hearing you talk. Mm, that inspiration is not a good thing because um, there's a whole issue around um, what's known as inspiration porn, which is where... I keep doing it wrong. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's where non-disabled people make themselves feel better by looking at how disabled people live and how they get on with apparently difficult tasks like getting out of bed in the morning okay so if you want to talk talk about disability um i would avoid using the inspiration word because it it suggests that i have barriers to overcome which other people don't so words around overcoming and kind of compensating and doing something despite something else are all actually ways of presenting disability as negative whereas actually it's just it's different it's negative because of the way society is constructed that's what makes being blind tiring expensive inconvenient okay it's because because of the way that we privilege the visual if we lived in a society where we didn't use print to communicate then blindness would would be much less of an issue fascinating <laughs> um, as you're a you're a, uh, a linguist Reading is a fundamental part, I imagine, of your sense of self. And I imagine, like most academics, has been since childhood, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. What are the advantages of being a blind reader? Oh, that's a really good question. So I I read slowly. Either I read on my Kindle, where I magnify it so that there's maybe eight words per screen, okay? Or I use um, a big kind of um, a magnifier, like a microscope-type magnifying glass, which fixes onto my glasses. It's like a, the kind of thing a jeweler uses to look at diamonds. Okay, it's that kind of thing. And, and that means and I maybe see one or two words at a time. So I don't know how to skim read. I can't read fast. And I used to think that was a disadvantage. You know, I used to think um, that means I can't cover enough ground. But actually, I've just developed a different way of relating to texts, which is reading in detail. So um, my, my kind of critical approach or theoretical approach to, to reading, to literature is to is to really focus on the detail. So that might be an image, a word, a metaphor, a symbol. Um, And my books are about how authors use language in very specifically 
to talk about things. And actually, most readers don't notice the tiny little kind of uh, ways that language is used, particularly not in novels. So because I sometimes make bad decisions, I decided to specialise in long 19th century French novels. Okay. (laughs) So... Um, oh no! So you know, it, it probably would have been more sensible to specialise in kind of modernist poetry or something like that. But <laughs> I just my so my PhD was on the twenty novels by Emile Zola. So you know, um, <laughs> so yeah. So I spent most of my time reading. But rather than kind of trying to to do what other people do and, and have a kind of holistic account, I just I, I zone in on the details of a text, and that's what I talk about, and that's also how I teach. So. When I'm with my students, um, I do a lot of close reading. I also teach translation, which is brilliant because translation is all about every single word. And actually, um, Flaubert is one of my favourite authors. And he used to write a bit like this. He used to choose, and he, you know, his novels are long, but he would choose every single word. He would actually um, shout his novels out loud as he was writing them to make sure that his novels sounded absolutely perfect. So he's a perfect author to listen to on Audible for example, because he, he he constructed his novels to be read aloud. And that means that you know that every single word is completely important, which means you can doesn't matter what you focus on, it's essential. I love the Flaubert that I've read. A Simple Life is what I think one of my favourite bits of prose. Is he well translated into English? Because I really want to savour that experience you're talking about, but I imagine you read him in French, do you? I read him in French, but actually I teach him in English as well alongside that. And I mean, Madame Bovary is the novel that I that I teach. And um, there are some excellent translations. It's not an easy task translating Flaubert. You know, translators have to be real specialists in his kind of prose. And I would say, have several translations. If you're really serious about reading Madame Bovary in English, read a, have a couple of translations, like an older one and a, a newer one. And also look at their prefaces, look at their notes, because every translator will have a... Uh, will have um, an approach. They'll have made decisions about whether to privilege the text and make maybe maybe make it harder to read because it's closer to the original French, or whether to kind of rewrite it for an English um, audience. I love what you're saying about writing. I think the closest examination of my writing that I really come across is when I'm working with translators, and particularly the the woman who's translated my plays into German, who's translated. I think 22 of my plays now, I always get these emails from her, uh, which are full of the kind of questions that nobody ever asks me about writing. And they're really about the absolute granular specifics of language choice and decisions that I'm not cognitive of, I'm not conscious of. When I'm writing a sentence, I just, for me, the process of writing is an entirely rhythmic or musical thing. I do speak it out loud when I'm writing and I do say it out loud when I'm writing, but it's an unconscious type of thinking if that's not a contradiction in terms. I'm fascinated by uh, talking to writers about how they write uh, with the, the podcasts that I do for the Royal Court. I interview writers about how they write and I'm really interested in how and the advantages of blindness for your writing as well as your reading. Where do you write, Hannah? Whereabouts do you write? Um, when when I was at school, they wouldn't let me do weirdly. They wouldn't let me do woodwork, and they wouldn't let me do metalwork. Um, fair enough, I, you know. So instead, they taught me to type. They taught me to touch type when I was ten, because I think they thought I was probably going to get a job in like a telephone exchange or a, you know, I don't know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know. So so I am an incredibly fast and accurate typist. 
it is the most important skill for my writing. So I've been typing all my writing since I was about 11. Okay, so my handwriting is just a disaster, completely, you know, um, and I always type, I always type. I could pretty much can type anywhere because I don't need to be able to see the keyboard. So I can type with my eyes closed, you know, I can type in the dark. <laughs> so mostly I write in the, in the attic upstairs. Um, I've got a little study upstairs and I like uh, listening to the, the rain or the birds or whatever it is, you know, it's quite, it's quite feels, you know, I try not to write in, in an academic way in that I really like short sentences. And one of the reasons for that is that that means I can see the whole sentence on the page at once. Okay. Cause if, because I, you know, I have to magnify everything so much that, and I don't, I can't remember that much of, of a sentence. So I need to, I've got a quite a, an academic writing style. Like it's, I'd say even in my academic books, it's more of a kind of a blog style, like a journalistic style, which I think makes, makes my work quite easy to read, quite kind of readable. Yeah. yeah, I have the opposite. I, I never have quite enough words. I'm always under word counts, whereas everyone else I know is always like completely trying to cut things down, you know? I love, uh, it's more about lexicon than word count, but I love that Anton Chekhov, who I think is my favourite writer, that his lexicon is the smallest or shortest of any any writer in the Penguin Classic collection. <laughs> and it's indicative, I think, of his great grace. I love his definition of grace, that it's the maximum effect with the minimum effort. And there's, so, <laughs> there's something about that in your writing, in your writing style. Was it fascinating exploring representations of blindness as a blind writer? Is it something that continues to, to provoke and engage you? I mean, now I'm, I'm kind of thinking more about audio description and I'm thinking about audio description as an art form until, until kind of almost now, I guess. It's been seen as an, an add-on, like um, kind of an additional access opportunity that is given to blind people. But in the 19th century, people couldn't travel to museums and galleries and there wasn't photography. So newspapers included descriptions of paintings routinely for everyone. Okay, so I'm kind of thinking about how how the 19th century French writers talked about art can kind of inform how we do audio description, because in the 19th century, writing about art was a genre of its own, you know, in its own right. So that's kind of what I'm thinking about now. In terms of representations of blindness, what I was interested in doing was was finding the the representations that didn't do what normally happens. So. I found a kind of collection of works in French that aren't about the stereotypes of blindness. So they don't, you know, they, they do they do extra interesting things. Like what? What kind of things? I mean, a lot of them are actually to do with reading and writing. So when, when non-blind writers use blind characters as narrators, that creates a whole new kind of writing because they're writing without using visual language often. And so that is a really good way for a non-blind person to try and understand what it's like to relate to the world in a non-visual way. You know, for example, um, Balzac has a couple of blind characters and he uses them to kind of move the plot forward in ways that he wouldn't be able to do with sighted characters because they, the, the plot's about like um, differences between people's voices, for example. Or uh, Fred Vargas, who's a, who's a French female contemporary crime writer in France, uses a blind character to show how traditional policing is too much based on visual assumptions. 
and that you know people can disguise the, the way they look they can't disguise the way they smell okay and so this this blind guy kind of works out who you know who, who the murderer was by this kind of smell which no one else has noticed so those are the kind of, <laughs> yeah so those are the kind of examples that i talk about the way that blindness becomes a gain it becomes a an advantage you know not in a kind of Comp- weird compensation way you know not in a kind of oh my my other senses are suddenly magically improved because that's another myth of blindness but more in just if you don't have to focus on the visual if you're not getting distracted by the visual you start noticing different things happening around you and that's kind of what i think this sound installation is going to show people yeah so we should talk about this because i was going to um I was going to ask you, your heart must have sank when you were contacted by the Donmar Warehouse and said, hey, we're going to do Saramago's blindness. <laughs> I mean, I was, I, yeah, my first thought was, oh, no, this is, this is a group of sighted people trying to, trying to recreate blindness. This is going to be an absolute disaster. I mean, there is, you know, lots of misguided ideas that, that putting, giving everyone, sitting everyone in the dark will, will, will increase empathy with blind people. It's just, it's just absolutely not the case. Sighted people tend to have, as we've discussed, these images of blindness. Um, and I just thought, that, you know, there's so much that could go wrong with this. But I very quickly realised, actually, that um, this is a really, really good opportunity to get people thinking about what happens when you can't focus on, like, the actors, you know, because they're not there. Theatre is a very immersive experience. Let's just emphasise that by really focusing on the sound, you know, the sound... Um, side of it yeah so we're working with the brilliant ringham brothers ben and max ringham who you spoke to last week um creating a headphone show the patented silent disco headphones which they used in their show at the national theater anna um last year so everybody will will, will be given a pair of these headphones which will be incredibly clean they've been thorough they will be completely they're the cleanest headphones that anybody's ever worn and this week, on the last week, we've recorded the soundtrack that Juliet Stevenson is, is, has made. Um, the play is divided into three thirds, and the Ringhams have used different sound techniques for each of the third. A kind of conventional um, mono microphone, which is more something people would be familiar with from audio books or kind of novelizations on Radio 4 or something for the first third. And then their brilliant binaural microphone for the second third, which will be synthesized into the final third. And I think they found, certainly Ben, who was speaking with you last week, was really excited by your enthusiasm for the binaural and, and the experience that the audience will will have. I hope, I hope. And also Jessica Huang Hunglon, who's designed it, her excitement at how you are affected by light as well, because light informs your experience of theatre, right? It continues to inform your experience of theatre. You go to the theatre uh, quite a lot, like you were saying, two or three times a month, maybe. I try and go as much as I can. I much prefer going when there's an audio-described performance. In fact, audio description at the theatre has completely changed my my relationship with theatre. I, I've always liked theatre, but now I absolutely love, I absolutely love it. And that's because I'm, I'm suddenly getting like a full experience. I didn't realise how much I was missing until I was having it all described to me. You know, like... Uh, when I was a kid, my my parents used to always, you know, I used to always get seats on the front row because that was the way that I'd be able to be the closest to the to the action. But even then, I couldn't necessarily tell which character was speaking or know. You, the thing about theatre is that you, as an audience member, you have to make the decision where to look. 
And I can only look at one place. I can't see the whole stage. I have to focus on, I have to use, like, use a telescope, like a monocle thing, monocular thing, to focus, right? So I need to know where to look. And so I need someone in my head telling me, like, X is doing this or Y is doing that. Otherwise, I'm looking in the wrong place. One of the hardest theatre experiences I ever had was an outdoor performance um, of Shakespeare, of, um, of Macbeth. And they were using um, microphones. But the microphones, were, the sound was being projected from a central point. So I didn't know, I couldn't, I had no idea which, where the characters were because the, you know, the noise wasn't coming from the characters. It was coming from the, the speakers, okay? And it was, a, it was an absolute nightmare because everyone else in the audience was turning their head. And I just didn't, I couldn't, I couldn't, I just had to copy people sitting next to me in the end because I felt like a complete idiot because I couldn't, I couldn't work out when, when the action was even happening. You know, if, so if that had been audio described, it would have been a completely different experience for me. Don't forget, most blind people have some light perception or some sight. I think it's only 2% of people have absolutely no visual perception at all. 2% of blind people, which is tiny. And a lot of people have very strong reactions to bright light, for example, which is my case. Because my, my pupils are small and, and don't kind of react quickly, um, I get really easily dazzled by low light or car headlights, that kind of thing. Yeah, that's, that's, that's been my experience in recent years, especially cycling. I found cycling in the dark impossible because of the, the lights seem more dazzling to me than they have before. I love to hear you talk about what you love about theatre. You say you've come to love it in recent years. I love the whole experience. I love the, I love the fact that you are immersed in a kind of bubble but you're, but you're not on your own. So you have like this, the sounds of people around you. There's a real kind of feeling of community. Um, and there's, there's just like an adrenaline of knowing that these people are performing live. I love that. I love the kind of knowing what's going on, like thinking about what's going on backstage. And one of the great things actually about audio description is that it often includes a touch tour before the production where you get to walk on the stage and you get to like visit backstage and see all the costumes and meet the actors and like touch the props and things. Great. It reminds you that, that theatre is a, is a whole like team production with all these people doing these different roles seamlessly kind of, you know, to, to create this thing. So actually the more I found out about theatre and the more I found out about audio description, the more I've realised like, the work that goes into it to create this spectacle. And I love the spectacle. I love like the, the lights and the music and the, the sound effects and the, the smoke, you know, the whole thing, just like the whole experience. I think it's the immediacy of it and the fact that it is multisensory, so all senses engaged. It's really making me miss going to the theatre hearing you talk about it. <laughs> I'm really excited that we were, we're able to, to, to make this piece, to make to make the piece at the Donner. I think it will be the first theatrical experience since the lockdown started in March. Uh, and I think it will be a deeper, fuller, kind of better experience for your collaboration on it. I mean, for me, just really, really exciting to talk to you. And I hope you enjoy it. I hope, I'm going to be really nervous. You're going to be the, the audience member I'm most nervous of. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really looking forward to it. I'm bringing my husband and my and my sons with me as well. And um, yeah, we're having like a big day out in London. It's a big, it's a big deal. Oh, so, yeah, brilliant! Really well, I hope I get to, to meet you. I hope I get to meet you in yeah. in, in real life. And um, absolutely, Hannah Thompson. Thank you so much for spending time and, and and talking with us this morning and for the fascinating insight into your work. 
it's been a real real joy for me it's a pleasure That was me, Simon Stevens, talking to Professor Hannah Thompson about the representations of blindness in Jose Saramago's novel, Blindness and My Adaptation. This adaptation reimagines the text as a socially distanced sound installation. You can find out more at donmorewarehouse.com. Thank you so much for listening. This episode was edited by Hannah Heffman for Better Lemon Creative Audio.